This is Solid Foundation Ministries with Dr. Pierre Couvert, building solid foundations through sound Bible teaching. Good morning and welcome back to Solid Foundation Ministries. Today I want to talk about something that has bothered me for a long time. If we want to see our churches, our families, and the nation, and and the rest of the world uh, turn back to God, we need to address this issue. Without addressing what I want to talk about today, we will never see revival. And revival is the only hope that society has. The thing that bothers me is the fact that we seem to accept everyone who says they are a Christian and says they believe in Jesus as being a true born-again Christian. We need to understand that there are many false teachings on who Jesus Christ is. If your faith is not in the right one, you are not a true Christian. Surveys tell us that the largest faith in the world is Christianity. However, it matters how we define Christianity. Our modern definition of Christianity is everything that calls itself Christian is Christian. We must remember that to be a true Christian, we must fit what the Bible says a Christian is. When you include Catholics in all of their various forms, and Jehovah Witnesses and Mormons and Evangelicals that don't hold biblical views, you are including many who are not true Christians. If we were to remove all of these, we would soon learn that Christianity is actually a minority religion. I'm not going to even try to deal with those who are outright heretics. I'm only going to deal with those we call evangelicals. And at that, I'm only going to deal with evangelicals that call the Bible their highest authority, that say personal evangelism is important, and that indicate that... uh, Trusting in Jesus Christ's death on the cross is the only way of salvation. Here are some of the findings of a Lifeway survey of evangelicals who fit this description. The first thing that I noticed in this survey is that 7 out of 10 so-called evangelicals believe that Jesus is the first and greatest creation of God. This tells us that they are not true Christians because one must believe that Jesus Christ is the eternal second person of the Trinity, the eternal Son of God. If he is a created being, he is not God. 56% of these evangelicals agreed that the Holy Spirit is a divine force, but not a personal being. Those who believe this do not believe in the biblical triune God and cannot be true Christians. The evangelicals in the survey say they believe that only those who trust in Jesus Christ alone as their Savior receive God's free gift of eternal salvation. Yet, nearly half of them agreed that God accepts worship from all religions including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. If they believe this, they don't believe in the God of the Bible and are not true Christians. Two-thirds of these evangelicals said that heaven is a place where all people will ultimately be reunited with their loved ones. Again, these people don't believe in the God of the Bible because the Bible clearly teaches the righteous judgment of God and the eternal punishment of all who die without Christ. 
the survey mentions other beliefs that depart from biblical faith, but I have limited myself to these because they show that many who seem to have a biblical view of God really don't. Those who hold these beliefs are not true Christians because they don't believe in the biblical God or the biblical Jesus. They have invented their own God and given him biblical names. This should not surprise us because the Bible tells us that it will be this way near Christ's return. Listen to what it says in Second Thessalonians chapter 2 in the first four verses. Now I beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and by our gathering together unto him, that ye be not soon shaken in mind, nor troubled, neither by spirit, nor by word, nor by letter, as from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first, and the man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalteth himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. This passage deals with both aspects of Christ's second coming, the rapture of the saints before the tribulation, and the return with his saints at the end of the tribulation. This is seen by the two things that must come before the day of Christ. The first is a falling away from the truth, and we see this on every hand. The second is the revelation of the man of sin, the son of perdition, who we often call the Antichrist. It is possible that the man of sin may be revealed before the rapture, but his evil intents will not be fully seen until afterward. According to the book of Revelation, he will first appear as a lamb, and according to Daniel, he will come in peacefully using flatteries. It is not until after he has full power that his evil intents are seen. We need to understand that looking at prophecy before it is fulfilled is like looking into a fog. You can see that something is there. You might even see how big it is or, or, or some other things about it, but you can't make out the details because it's foggy. It is, therefore, not wise to be too dogmatic on the details of prophecy before its fulfillment, but the major points can still be fully seen. This next passage from from Second Timothy chapter four uh, gives us some of those things that we can clearly see, but we don't really understand all the details. It says, "Preach the word, be it in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lust shall heap to themselves." teachers having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth, and shall be turned unto fables. This passage tells us that time will come when people will not accept sound doctrine, they'll turn away from the truth and be turned to fables. The first two words in this passage tell us how to, how to keep this from happening. There is a lot of preaching from the Bible, and many of the messages we hear are good in what they say. However, listen carefully, and you will see that the things mentioned in this passage are largely missing. I suppose it is fear of losing members that have caused preachers not to preach on the hard things of Word of God, but there is little reproving, 
rebuking, and exhorting in most churches today. This passage tells us how preachers are supposed to handle things. First of all, they are to preach with long-suffering. This means to keep on preaching all of the Word of God, even when the people don't seem to hear or care, or when they even are upset or oppose that kind of preaching. Preaching with doctrine means that preachers are to preach on the doctrines found in the Scriptures. Yes, in difficult times like we live in today, messages of encouragement are needed. But the reason we are in difficult times is that most of our people don't really know sound doctrine. They may be able to name the doctrines, but can they expound on them or defend them to somebody who opposes them? One important area of doctrine is that which concerns the end times. There are two reasons that this is important. The first is it encourages Christians in these dark days. The second is that it encourages righteous living among God's people. Both of these are important if we're going to reach the lost. Paul, in writing to the church in Thessalonica, said that it was not necessary for him to write about the times and season. He expected them to know the scriptures well enough to understand these things. Listen to what he had to say in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, in the first five verses. It says, But of the times and seasons, brethren, ye have no need that I write unto you, for ye yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. For when they shall say, Peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them, as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. But ye, brethren, are not in darkness, that that day should overtake you as a thief. Ye are the children of light, and children of the day. Ye are not of the night, nor of darkness." Paul points out that Christ's return will come as a thief in the night. When people are crying for peace and safety, then sudden destruction is going to come upon them, and that describes the day we live in. No one knows the day nor the hour of Christ's return, but as Christians, we don't walk in darkness. We walk in the light of God's Word, and as such, we can see the times and seasons. We can see that it, that it has to be coming near. This doesn't mean that we know exactly when Christ will come, but it does mean that we are well enough informed in the scriptures to look at what's happening in the world and say his time must be soon. Now, there have been times in the past where they thought this would happen. They thought Christ would return. The year 1000, they thought that Christ would return because it was the end of a millennium. They thought the same thing in the year 2000, and there have been other times in past. But we can look at what's happening today, and we see things we've never seen before. And so we as Christians should be fully aware that his time is nigh and that uh, uh, we should be doing all we can to reach those around us before it's eternally too late. And we should be certain that we ourselves are living so that when Christ does catch us out of this world, we will not be ashamed at his coming. A lot of those who claim to be Christians today are deceived. As I said before, discerning the time causes righteous living. Sadly, most who claim to be Christians in the modern world don't even know what righteousness is. It is living by the precepts of God as found in the scriptures. They are deceived into thinking that the unrighteous still get to go to heaven. 
Remember, two-thirds of evangelicals believe that everyone will eventually get to heaven. Believing this shows how biblically illiterate modern professing Christians are. They have no idea what the Bible says on the subject of getting to heaven. They think if you're a reasonably good person, you're going to get there. And uh, apparently many of them believe that even if you're not, you may do something like the Catholic purgatory or something. And when you come out the other side, then you'll be allowed into heaven. But that is not what the Bible teaches. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 9, it says, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, shall inherit the kingdom of heaven. Fornicators and adulterers are those who are involved in illicit sexual activities. They can be actual acts that they commit, or they can just be lusting in their minds. That's what Jesus taught. This includes things like sex before marriage or outside of marriage. It includes all of the deviant forms of sexuality, which we'll mention in a moment, and everything else that is done that is incorrect sexual activity. Idolaters are those who put anything or anyone before God. Folks, when you put your job, even your family, uh, before God, you are an idolater. When you allow the things of this world to be the focus of your attention all the time, you are an idolater. We need to understand that God must come first in our life or we're worshiping something other than God. The fact that we saw that many so-called evangelicals believe that God accepts worship from all religions shows that they're idolaters because they're worshiping a false God and supposedly God accepts that. The Bible is very clear. He does not. Those who are effeminate or abusers of themselves with mankind are homosexuals and the like. This is an abomination before God. This doesn't mean that we should be out there beating up on or, or, uh, homosexuals, it, uh, but it does mean that it is not a Christian uh, position and that uh, it is abomination before God and should be an abomination for us. Our goal towards these people should not be to bash them. It should be to win them to Christ and save them from this un. Uh, toward lifestyle. While it is true that God will forgive those who do these things, all of them that I've mentioned, it is also true that he will only do so if they repent and turn from them. If they continue in their sin, he's not going to forgive them, and nobody who is truly saved can continue in their sin uh, and things that are an abomination to God because the Bible teaches that something more than just going to heaven happens when we die. The Bible teaches that a person who is born again becomes a new creature. And as a new creature, old things are passed away. That's all of these sins, plus some other things that haven't been mentioned. And all things are become new. Our life should change. If there's no visible change in the life of a person who professes Christ, the profession is merely superficial and false and will not get them to heaven. The Bible doesn't teach that believing in God will get you to heaven. The Bible doesn't even teach that just believing in sweet Jesus will get you to heaven. It teaches that believing on the Lord Jesus Christ will get you to heaven. And that means believing on him as the Lord, the one who is final authority and to whom we must give an account. Jesus, the only Savior, and Christ, 
the anointed one of God, if you don't believe in that kind of a Jesus, you're not saved. I mentioned before, there are many different definitions and ideas of who Jesus Christ is, and, and you've got to hold the right one and believe on the right one. The message coming from most evangelistic efforts today is God loves you and doesn't want you to go to hell. Just believe in Jesus and all will be well. While it is true that God does love the world and that he does not want anyone to go to hell, the message of the Bible is that those who live in sin will not go to heaven. Here's another passage from the book of Ephesians chapter 5 that says basically the same thing. It says, but fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not be once named among you as becometh the saints neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor jesting which are not uh, convenient but rather giving thanks for this ye know that no whoremonger or unclean person nor covetous man or who is an idolater hath any inheritance in the kingdom of christ and god folks think about that a little bit <clears throat> all of these things will keep you from having any inheritance in the kingdom of god and Notice that it's more than just the big things we think about. How about foolish talking or jesting? Now, jesting, that doesn't mean we can't have fun. It says uh, foolish talking or jesting, which are not convenient. That means inappropriate uh, things. It's not wrong to tell a joke as long as it's a proper joke and in the proper situation. But these people have no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. These last two passages have some pretty strong language, and this language should affect our evangelistic efforts. Have you ever wondered why we see so many professions of faith in Christ and so few who continue faithfully? The reason is quite simple. We keep telling people that they need to come to Christ because God loves them and that he will solve all their problems. I have challenged people to show me this from the scriptures, and to this date, no one has been able to do so. The Bible does not teach what I just said. There are signs on 321, and there are more and more of them all the time, I notice, that say Jesus is the answer to all your problems. I suppose in a sense that may be true, but the impl implication of that statement is that if you come to Christ, you're not going to have any problems anymore. And nothing can be further than that from the truth. We need to understand that as Christians, we will still have problems in our lives. God does not promise to remove all those problems. And so many of the people who are making professions of faith today are doing so because they're going through difficult times in their life. They are looking for a solution to their problems, not a solution to the sin problem, not a solution to their condemnation before God, but their financial problems or their marital problems or whatever they are, they're, they're wanting those things solved. Now, if we follow God's principles, those things will be solved, but we need to understand that it's when we follow God's principles that these things are solved, but there are other things that will be in our lives that will be problems, and Christ only promised to go through our problems with us and bring us out the other side safely, not to take our problems away. So how was evangelism done in the Bible? How was it carried out? Let me give you two examples. There are more, but let me give you two examples. The first is Peter's message on the day of Pentecost. And I'm not going to read all of these, just those parts that are pertinent to the message. But in Acts chapter 2, verses 22 and 23, it says, Ye men of Israel, 
Hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken, and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. Boy, that sure doesn't sound like the message that says God loves you and doesn't want you to go to, uh, to hell. No, the message was you have crucified the Lord of glory and you are in deep trouble with God. It's not God loves you, it's you're in trouble with God. While it is true that most people have not done such horrible things as this, it is also true that all of us have sinned against God. It is because of our sin that we are condemned, and people need to understand that their sin truly has condemned them. The results of this kind of uh, evangelism is seen in the next few verses. It says, Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their hearts, and said unto Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? What's missing in most uh, of our evangelistic efforts today is people being pricked in their hearts or brought under conviction of sin and understanding that they are in danger with God and saying, what do we have to do about it? How do I get out of this situation? It brought true conviction into the hearts of those who heard and you know the rest of the story. There were about 3,000 souls saved on that single day. When is the last time you saw something like that? Saw so many coming to Christ in one day. And not only that, if you follow the rest of the scriptures, you will see that it says, and they, who, the 3,000, all uh, continued in the faith. It wasn't like we see today where many make professions of faith and then are soon gone by the wayside and don't continue. We're lucky if we're keeping 10% of those that we supposedly reach for Christ in most churches today. So it's something we should stop and think about and realize we're doing something wrong. Now in this second example, we see that the proper method of soul winning doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to see 3,000 souls saved in a day. This is Paul as he spoke to the uh, Greeks in Athens on Mars Hill. In uh, Acts chapter 17, verses 31 through 34, it says, Because he hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world by righteousness by that man who hath uh, ordained, whereof he hath given assurance to all men in that he hath raised him from the dead. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, and others said, We will hear again of this matter. So Paul departed among them, howbeit certain men clave unto him and believed, among the which was Dionymus the Aragapite, excuse me for my mispronunciation, and a woman named Demarius and others with them. This time we don't see great numbers saved like we did on Pentecost. However, notice that Paul did tell them that they would be judged by Jesus Christ, who had risen from the dead. He also told them that the standard of judgment would be God's righteousness and not man's uh, opinions. So we need to get that message across to people that they are going to be judged by God's righteous principles as found in the word of God and as such they're in deep trouble. Something needs to change. 
I have taken time to d discuss the difference in the way we evangelize today and the way it was done in the Bible because I believe that this is at the heart of the problems we have in America and in the world today. When we get professions of faith today, many of them are really professing faith in a Jesus who will solve their problems and give them what they want. They are not trusting in a Jesus who is the eternal, holy, righteous God and to whom they must give account. There are three results that come from the kind of professions that we're getting today. The first is, a few will truly put their faith in Christ and be gloriously saved. Sadly, that seems to be a minority position. Notice that I said a few. The second is that when the problems don't go away, they will say, well, that didn't work, so I'll try something else, and they're gone. You can't find them anymore. The third is our churches are filled with lost people who have started playing the religion game. When they hear the word of God, it has no effect on them because they are still natural and not spiritual. The Bible tells us that the natural man cannot receive the Word of God. That means they can't understand it until they're saved. So we need to make sure that people are saved. When we watch our churches and we see people that come in week after week and after week to church services, maybe faithful in all the services, but there's no change in their lives, we need to understand something is dreadfully wrong this third group often becomes influential enough uh, that they start to control the church or at least cause the pastor to compromise on what uh, he preaches for fear of losing members and of course that all-important thing called offerings that pay his salary. This is why we see what I have talked about in the beginning of this message, people who don't understand the things of God, people who profess to be evangelicals, save people who have no understanding whatsoever and no proper belief in, in the God of the Bible and the Lord Jesus Christ. We as Christians don't walk in darkness, we walk in the light of God's word. So there are signs that anyone who has their eyes open uh, can see that the return of Christ is, is new. They are obvious by just looking around us. In Second uh, Timothy chapter 3, the first three verses, it says, This know also, that in the last days perilous times shall come. I think we can say we're there. For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce-bakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those who are good. Boy, I could spend an hour just on that verse alone, but we don't have time. But this passage does describe the days we live in to a T. Perilous times are all around us. If you doubt that, just turn on the news and see what's happening in places like Portland, Oregon, and, and many liberal cities across this nation. The cause for the perilous times is given in this passage. We can sum it up by saying, these perilous times are upon us because there has been a departure from the holy precepts of God. Evil is promoted in our society, and good is despised. I want to close out this message by talking a little bit about the spirit of Antichrist. The word Antichrist is found five times in the scriptures, four times in 1 John and one time in 2 John. The Greek word means an opponent of the Messiah. The following verses are where it is found. The first is 1 John 
2.18 it says little children it is the last time and as ye have heard that antichrist will come even now there are many antichrists whereby we know that it is the last time then in john chapter 2 verse 22 it says who is a liar but he that denieth that jesus is the christ he is antichrist and denieth the father and the son then in first john four verse three it says and every spirit that confesses not that jesus christ has come in the flesh is not of god and this is the spirit of antichrist whereof ye have heard that it should come and even now already is in the world the next is second john chapter one and verse seven it says for many deceivers are entered into this world who confess not that jesus christ has come in the flesh this is a deceiver and an antichrist there are a few things that we learn from these passages first is there are many antichrists not just one they were there in bible times and they are certainly with us today antichrist is is more a spirit than a particular individual many individuals are controlled by the spirit of antichrist and of course the ultimate of those people is the man of sin the son of perdition that we saw earlier folks it's time that we become discerning christians that we start digging into the scriptures learning what the bible says pastors need to preach the whole counsel of god need to pe- teach their people to understand sound doctrine and be able to defend it in these perilous times You have been listening to Solid Foundation Ministries from Lenore, North Carolina. Dr. Kuvert has 35 years in the ministry as a former missionary and pastor. He is available for revivals and various conferences on missions, Bible, Baptist heritage, and the family. To find out more, go to our website, solidfoundationministries.com, or call 828-244-244. 6505. Remember, the Christian life is not about you, it's about God receiving the glory.